A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Hudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode, Chabad and Zionism Part 2, has been generously sponsored and dedicated to all of the Rebbe's shluchim around the world. And this is the long-awaited part two. We had uh, part one, Chabad and Zionism, where talked, I talked about, discussed the uh, Rashab, the Reb, fifth Rebbe of Chabad, Reb Sholem Ber Schneerson, and his position on uh, Zionism and hit the historical context where that took place. And I left off uh, pretty much with, um, with the Rashab. I didn't have a chance to get to uh, his son and successor, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the Rayats, or as is known as the Free Yidikar Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, and of course his son-in-law, the next Rebbe, Rabbi Nacha Mendel Schneerson. Um, and the the goals of today is to pretty much pick up from where we left off last time and uh, cover how throughout the last century the the story of the relationship between Chabad Lubavitch and the Zionist movement, which of course it becomes even more interesting once the State of Israel is founded in 1948. Um, so I got to be extremely careful because after part one, uh, where part two was anticipated at the end of part one, I basically, it was like borderline death threats to what I got, like you better do this correctly and you better use these sources and it was all kinds of exciting emails that I got like that. So... <laughs> Before I start, I want to emphasize to all those, uh, just for my safety, I want to emphasize that this podcast, Jewish History Soundbites, is not about Jewish philosophy. It's not even about Torah philosophy or Hasidic philosophy. In fact, I do my best to not have any Torah on here altogether. Um, sometimes it slips in just because I love Torah so much. But um, it's not even an in, in intellectual history or even the history of ideas. I focus on social history, the history of people, of society, of communities, of places, of events, and I do my utmost to stay away from deeper ideas, ideas that I don't profess to understand. So this presents a challenge for an episode such as this, which is ostensibly about ideas and philosophy and not about people and places. Um, because the expectation over here is to delve into the ideas and explanations, which I'm not the best suited to, and quite frankly also not inclined to, even if I was. 
So what I'm going to do is attempt to maintain a fine balance to describe the historical process, the people involved, some stories that are interesting along the way, uh, the context uh, surrounding it, and I'll, of course, also touch on some of the underlying themes because that's unavoidable. Um, so that's that's how I'm going to approach it, and I hope that finds favor in the ears of the listeners. I got lots of loads of valuable feedback uh, after part one from many listeners, and several of them, I want to uh, point them out uh, specifically, uh, um, although they, they I, I presume, it seemed that they presumed to remain anonymous, although I'd love to thank them by name publicly, but their dedicated and knowledgeable listeners were kind enough to share very important sources related to this subject, and this is actually this uh, part two is one of the only times in which the majority of the sources which I utilized in the preparation of this episode, the bulk of which came from listeners who graciously and voluntarily shared the information and sources. I'd like to thank all of the ones who did so and really appreciate it. And it says a lot about the listeners and the community of Jewish History Soundbites that not only their knowledge level, but also their willingness to share uh, that knowledge and point to, to the sources. So this is really a collaborative effort of several uh, very uh, uh, um, uh, knowledgeable and dedicated listeners uh, and and myself. So it's really nice. Thank you. Some of them um, I've corresponded with many times in the past. Another another one was a co- another one I was corresponding with has written extensively on this sp- subject specifically Chabad and Zionism, and is even considered a uh, something of a worldwide expert in this regard. And in his great modesty did not even tell me that. I only discovered it over the course of my research. So this has been a very, very gratifying group effort here uh, to produce this episode. Speaking of which, is also the sheer enormity of the sources. And it's typical for Chabad. There's always loads of written material and text. is sometimes tens of pages long, an endless amount of material. So there's no way, obviously, that I was reading all that. So I have to confess that I did not wade through all of it, but uh, I was able to try to read some of it, um, you know, in depth and and word for word, but other ones I just uh, browsed through and whatever caught my eye and perused and skimmed and summarized. Um, Another point is worth noting in this rather long introduction. The claim is made within Chabad until today that the essence of the position formulated by the Rashab in regards to the Zionist movement, has not changed throughout history by any of his successors. What did change was external circumstances, and which therefore required different reactions, but the substance essentially remain constant. Others, I, I understand, disagree with that position. I personally am not taking any sides here. I'm just trying to present how it appears uh, throughout history. So, We'll go. Um, we'll go talk a little bit about a, the um, the go into the Rayats, the world of the Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yisuf Yitzchak Schneerson. He becomes the sixth Rebbe of Chabad. They're no longer in Lubavitch. His father, the Rashab, passes away at a very a tremendous time of crisis for Russian Jewry. It's after World War One. It's after the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. And it's the communist takeover of the former Russian Empire, and the the Soviet Union is in the process of formation, and therefore the years of leadership of the Rayats are marked by instability and crisis and constant migration, escapes, 
movement. No one in the history of Chabad ever confronted a time of crisis as the Rayats did. And his leadership is incredible during the three decades of his leadership, and this definitely affected his leadership and his positions on various issues. He starts in 1920 in Russia, and he goes from country to country and place to place, some as places that he attempted to settle down, some as just visits, and he ends up finally at the end of his life, the last decade of his life, in in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, in the United States, where he passes away in 1950, in a new world, right? In 1948, already there's the State of Israel. It's after the Holocaust. It's after a lot that he has uh, seen and gone through. So the um, he he's he's uh, he leaves the Soviet Union in 1927. He ends up in in Latvia and Riga. He's uh, he does has a visit to the United States, which is almost a year long, several months long. He has a visit to Eretz Yisrael. He's the only um, leader of Chabad, only Rebbe of Chabad, who uh, ends up who ends up visiting Eretz Yisrael at one point, and he he settles in in uh, in Poland first in Warsaw and then to a Warsaw suburb, Otwatsk, right outside the city, where there's a very very prominent Temchei Tamimim. Uh, yeshiva until the war breaks out, and shortly after the war breaks out, he's able to make it to the United States, where he settles uh, for the remainder of his life, and eventually in Crown Heights and 770 and Eastern Parkway, and that's uh, and that's the story. The rest is history. There's there's a period of stability after that. So, when the Rayats visits the land of Israel in 1929, um, he he. Be- He's he's all over. He goes to he's in Yerushalayim. He's in Hebron. He's in he goes up to Mars and Achpela. I think I mentioned in, an, in another context. He he goes up to, to, to up north to, to Tzfas and Tveria. He's he's uh, meeting people. So supposedly this story took place um, that he that he went to a uh, a kibbutz. This is at you know this 1929 is already the fourth Aliyah, and the kibbutz movement is already two decades old. And the kibbutzim are primarily secular for the most part, and very socialist also. Almost, uh, it's actually one of the only places in the world that there's pure communism, uh, a pure uh, communist economy from each according to his labor to each according to his need, uh, being practiced in in a uh, in a mini you know in this in these communes of of, uh, of where there's a you know a sharing of uh, a sharing of the wealth so to speak. So he, the 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 Friedrich Rebbe visits a kibbutz and sees the agricultural production, sees how they're developing the land, draining the marshes, and 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 things are blossoming and being produced. And he says to a chassid who's accompanying him, "Are you impressed?" And the chassid is not sure what to say because he is aware of the of the Chabad position of the Rebbe's father, the Rashab, and. The Rebbe himself, the the, the Rayats, who continues that, and of there's the, of, of this opposition to Zionism and the Zionist movement, especially the secularist elements thereof. So he's not sure what to say, and the Rayats allegedly says to him, "It's okay. You can you can say you're impressed because I'm impressed too." Um, so he's impressed, but yet he does not fundamentally change his position, his opposition rather. To, to Zionism. The Rashab and later the Rats had essentially two issues 
with with the Zionist movement. Again, this is all pre-state. We're going to get to the founding of the state shortly. There's the the fact that it's Jewish nationalism is a, is replacing religion as the Jewish identity, and the fact that the redemption, the Geula, is uh, taking place in a different way than they understood to be the correct way to leave the exile of the Mashiach to arrive, of the doing mitzvahs and and observing the Torah precepts to enable Mashiach's arrival, and because of those uh, issues, that's that was the the core of the opposition. There was other factors as well. And in 1937, the Rayats was in stated opposition to the Peel Commission's recommendation for the establishment of a state, of a Jewish state, of the, part- the original partition plan. Um, and he had his proxies at the third Knesset Gedayla of Agudas Yisrael in Marienbad that year to lobby to oppose it. Um, so he was you know, actively involved. He himself didn't participate in the Agudas Yisrael. Just as an aside, once I brought that up, the the uh, the discussion surrounding the support or opposition to the Peel Commission at the Third Knesset Gedalia in Marienbad. So I just want to point out that the support or opposition from the Agudis Yisrael was essentially meaningless. The British uh, government and the League of Nations definitely didn't really care what the uh, Agudis Yisrael was deciding at the Third Knesset Gedalia in Marienbad, and and they they even I'll take a, take a step further. They didn't care. The British didn't care what the Zionist Congress decided. They didn't care what the Arab League decided. The nations of the world and the British Empire specifically consistently and always acted out of their own interests, their own colonial interests at any given moment. But of course, we as Jews love to, we're a bit self-centered and we like pretending that we have a huge influence on world history and and what we decide at our conventions has an impact on what the British Empire is going to do. So that's fine. So with the founding of the state in 1948, the Rayats writes a series of letters to his followers where he, he reiterates his position about Geula, about the exile, and yet he clarifies that we must do all in our, in our power to assist our brothers, the Jewish people, physically and spiritually, in any situation, wherever they are. And even those Hasidim whom he advised to settle in the land of Israel, and then after 1948 in the state of Israel, um, the Rayats clarified that he never advised uh, to 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 go en masse uh, to his Hasidim. It was individuals who asked him, uh, based on their individual needs, he would advise them, and it was not some sort of uh, clarion call to make Aliyah. And in continuing in that line, when he obtained U.S. citizenship in 1949, a very interesting uh, story, the Rayats he obtains U.S. citizenship in a very public and very, you know, a lot of drama, a lot of flair. And he says to his Hasidim at the time, some of his Hasidim at the time, that the reason that he chose to do it at this point and to publicize it, he went to the media, he went to the newspapers and sent a letter thanking the U.S. government um, and, and talked about the privilege of holding U.S. citizenship. Um, so he, he explained that the idea was that he's emphasizing that he's a citizen of the United States and that it was a statement uh, negating the Aschalta de Geula, that this is the birth of the redemption, the founding of the State of Israel, which was the belief of the religious Zionist faction uh, and, the, and, and the community of religious Zionism. And the, the Rayats felt that it was important for him to declare his opposition to, to that idea of Aschalta de Geula. And therefore he goes to the media and says, uh, I received U.S. citizenship and I want to thank the United States and of the privilege of holding U.S. citizenship. Um, 
So that was uh, that was an important uh, thing for him to to d- declare. Now, if we take a step back, right before the founding of the state of Israel, the UN uh, goes to vote on the partition plan in 1947. And here we come to a fascinating story of the relationship that Shneir Zalman Shazar, Rubishov, later Shazar, the Zalman Shazar, the third president of the state of Israel from 1963 to 1973. But he's a long time, he had a, his family came from Chabad, he uh, was very, you know, very much affiliated with it um, throughout his life, especially in his later years, but even before that. And he had a relationship with the Friedrich Rebbe, with the previous Rebbe. And he, um, and he's in. Um, so Shazar attended a a Fabrengen in Paris in 1960 in honor of the yard site of the Friedrich Rebbe. This is ten years after his passing. The Rayats passed away in 1950, so this is 1960. So before he's president, right? He only becomes president of the State of Israel in 1963, but he was a diplomat, and he's in France in, in some sort of official diplomatic uh, uh, position. And he goes to this Fabrengen, and he speaks at the gathering, and he says that he meet, meets the Rayats for the first time in St. Petersburg in 1910 by the rabbinical conference where the young Rayats was accompanying his father, the Rashab, um, and, and, and Shazar was in uh, in in uh, in uh, Saint Petersburg, because he he was he was working on Jewish immigration at that time. A different story, actually, a very interesting story. He was affiliated with Baron uh, Hirsch's organization that assisted Jewish emigration uh, uh, from the Russian Empire. Either way, Shazar was it, it describes at this gathering how. He was in the United States in 1947, in November of 1947, for the UN vote on the partition plan. He was part of Israel's, well, it wasn't Israel then, it was the, it was the Jewish agency or, or the Yishuv, uh, uh, their, their diplomatic team. Um, the morning of the vote, he receives a call, a telephone call in his hotel room from Reb Shmaryo Gurarya, the, the, the son-in-law of the, of the Rebbe, of the Rayats. And he asked him, they said that the Rebbe wants to know what's going on, what's happening with the vote. So the Shazar provides the details. And then, um, and then he says to Gurari, he says to him, we need lots of rachamim, we need lots of mercy, a heavenly mercy. So the Rebbe conveys through Rebbe Shemariah Gurari that the Ebishtu Vatelfen, Hashem is going to help. And then he requests of Shazar that he call as soon as the vote is in, he he, he, he contact the Rebbe and let him know the results, which Shazar did. And then he subsequently meets with the Rayats as well, and many times also, I mean, he enjoyed a very uh, warm relationship with the Rebbe afterwards, um, following the Rayats' passing in 1950. He, for many years, every time he came to the United States, he would meet with the Rebbe. And in Israel, he assisted with the establishment of Kfar Chabad, and with the Lubavitch Educational Institutions in Israel, he participated in Fabrengen's regularly. He would go to Kfar Chabad for Yud Teskisle, Fabrengen. He had a very interesting relationship with the Chabad Lubavitch Hazar. So, so here he here he's describing that with all the opposition that that the Rayats may have had, but he was very deeply concerned about what was happening with the UN vote, about what was happening with the founding of the State of Israel. And and that's a, a fascinating uh, balance that that the that the that the Rats is able to have um, um, at the time. Um, the 
in the, just even the founding of Kfar Chabad itself, the fact that the that the Rayats initiated that founding to have this agricultural settlement, which was essentially to help assist Holocaust survivors or Hasidim who had escaped from the Soviet Union and the like, refugees who needed a place to live, who needed a place to go. And here he thought it was a viable option for them to be. So it wasn't seen as some sort of visionary pioneering endeavor, um, but rather a, a place of refuge. And, and Jews need a refuge. And this would be a very practical solution. And, and in that context, to see how he, how he initiates and then tries to build up the Kfar Chabad in his last years. This is this position, these positions and actions also are continued later on by the Rebbe when the Rebbe takes over. Um, by now, it's a period of stability. Uh, they're more established in the United States. They're building up their institutions in the United States. Uh, he, unlike his father-in-law, doesn't have to escape anywhere. He's not escaping the Soviet Union at this point. When he's Rebbe, I'm talking about. Um, he's he's stable. He he doesn't he literally doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't uh, he doesn't travel. Um, he never visited Israel or anywhere else for that matter as, as, as Rebbe. Um, when, when Israeli politicians meet with him, they're coming to him. They meet with him at 770. Uh, so on one hand, the Rebbe continues the Rashab and the Rayats, his father-in-law's tradition of opposition, by not recognizing the Eschalta de Geula, by being opposed to the very idea of Eschalta de Geula, that it's the beginning, of the dawn of the redemption. It's not the dawn of the redemption in his view. Not only that, but the many times he refers to uh, to Israel, he never once refers to it as Medinat Yisrael or Medinas Yisrael. <laughs> However, he would pronounce it. He never refers to it that way. The state of Israel. It's never the state of Israel. It's Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, uh, because of the former terms affiliation with nationalism, which he continued to oppose. He maintained a correspondence with a Chabad Chassid, Reb Shlomo Yosef Zevin, who was a fascinating personality, and where he clarifies his position on Eschalta de Geula. He, he wrote in opposition to the ideas of Reb Menachem Mendel Kasher, who wrote extensively on the topic and did support the idea of Eschalta de Geula, that it is the dawn of the redemption, and they maintain this this uh, polemical discussion about whether it is or isn't with the uh, Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, very clearly uh, uh, clarifying his position in opposition to the idea of Aschalta de Geula. So there's actually um, a, an interesting uh, reference that the Rebbe uh, see, refers to the UN vote of 1947, which took place before he became Rebbe, he refers to it as an unprecedented opportunity to observe the Torah and mitzvot with autonomy, with Jewish autonomy, to bring the Geula closer, bring the redemption closer in the land of Israel. Uh, so it could have been anywhere. Hashem could have given autonomy to the Jewish people um, in uh, in any in any country of the world, and he, he gave the opportunity to have it take place in the land of Israel. He felt that that was an opportunity. So yet. He, he, you know, he was concerned that the country is not run according to the precepts of the Torah, and that's really too bad. Um, and then he says explicitly, this, he says, I don't refer to this as the state of Israel, rather as Eretz Yisrael. And then he's asked, he's asked by a close chassid of his, whether one should, should publicize this view and publicize the protest 
against uh, the idea of Aschal to the Gula and so on and so forth, this opposition which ostensibly comes from the Rashab and the Rayats and now is continuing until this very day, should that be publicized? And and the the uh, the Rebbe answers that the rabbis living in Israel have the responsibility of publicizing these ideas, but not me. Why? Because if I do, then they'll say, here's there's a rabbi sitting in Brooklyn and expressing opinions about Israel. So that's very interesting. So I'm not a rabbi, but I'm in Israel, so I'll, I have a license to say whatever I want, I guess. Either way, no, I'm just kidding around. But um, anyways, the main thing is that the... Uh, that the Rebbe over there, at that point, he says that the main thing uh, is that Jews must seek out and emphasize that which unifies the Jewish people and not what sets it apart. So in this, in this, same, in this same piece, the Rebbe goes back and forth. He says that, uh, that, that on one hand there is this opposition. On the other hand, he says that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is that Jews should emphasize that which unifies the Jewish people, and not that what sets us apart, which kind of was his theme throughout, and that's what evolved as the primary theme, is that the, the, the rest of it is to be played down because that's divisive, and that what unifies us is so much more important. And then he reiterates again, once again, um, uh, that, it's, uh, that the, the true borders of Israel um, and, and Eretz Yisrael are to be found in the Torah. So he says, the, you know, the fact that there's a UN recognition of one border and the modern state of Israel through the different wars, uh, the War of Independence and later on the Six-Day War, they expand the borders. He said the borders are what it states in the Torah um, and, and, and the borders are what protects the Jewish people. In other words, he's very into the pikuach nefesh, the protecting the lives of the Jewish people. Never seeing it in a political sense or the beginning of the Geula, look, we have this nationalistic state sense, but rather the protection of the Jewish people and all ideally according to the Torah. So simultaneously, the Rebbe was also involved in helping jumpstart the economy of the state of Israel. He was he, he encouraged people to start businesses, um, and he he, uh, he 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 you know people who would open factories. He had you know to, he tried to encourage them and even get investors for them so that they would hire Holocaust survivors, so that they would hire recent immigrants and refugees. In other words, again, he sees it as a concern for the Jewish people. So Jewish businesses in this Jewish state are very important and to be supported because. The better the economy is, then the better it is for the average person, the average Jew. Um, the Rebbe as well, during the 1950s and 60s, emphasized several times that he never changed the position of the Rashab as his official position, his ideological position in regards to the redemption and his relationship with the State of Israel. And he continued speaking about it at different uh, occasions and platforms, well, almost to the end of his life, well into the 1980s. And fundamentally, this position is not very different than the, fundamentally, again, in, in practicality, it came out a bit different, but fundamentally, the position that Chabad maintained, this balance, this, this um, you know, an ideological concern on one hand and the practical application of it on the other, is fundamentally not very different than the mainstream Agudis Yisrael stance, which is Ger and 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 bells and the yeshiva world, the Lithuanian Torah world uh, position. There's a, it's a bit more nuanced in Chabad, and it comes out practically a little bit more nuanced 
in the fact uh, that that they're you know in 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 in, in the Rebbe's ideas of of borders um, and and land that was conquered during the six that was occupied after the Six Day War. It also comes out in the active participation in the army in the military. Um, so there is practical differences, but fundamentally, it's not very different than that mainstream position, as opposed to, on one hand, the religious uh, nationalism position, which supports the idea of of, of, of Aschalta de Geula, on one hand, and the uh, other position of Satmer, the Eide Haredis, Naturi Karta, however you want to term it, of a non-official non-recognition of the institution of the state altogether. So again, Chabad is going to be somewhere in between those two extremes, and that's exactly where the mainstream Agudas Yisrael position was maintained also. But um, there are even differences between that also. But a fascinating story, which I think brings it out also, is the story of, um, brings out the nuance, the, 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 the position of Chabad uh, as far as Zionism and the state of Israel is concerned, is a story surrounding the conversion of Reb Mendel Vechter from Satmer to Chabad, which took place in the late 70s and early 80s, and is a fascinating story, and is not directly related to this subject, but it is somewhat related. Um, and Reb Mendel Vechter, may he live and be well, lives in Kiryat Malachi here in Israel, so his son-in-law is my neighbor and a friend of mine, and he's the Chabad rabbi in my neighborhood, and we enjoy a very good relationship. Um, so he introduced me to the story of his father-in-law, and uh, and also to the letter that Rabbi El Khan, a famous legendary Rabbi El Khan, uh, the 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 one who was review the Torah of of the Rebbe for many decades, a famous famous personality, just recently passed away. So Rabbi El Khan. Uh, was the mentor of Ramendel Vechter when he joined the Chabad community, and he wrote a letter to him uh, to clarify Chabad's current position on Zionism. It's a 29-page letter that I have to confess also that I never finished uh, the entire letter, though I made several attempts. But the background of this story um, gives, uh, in general, gives a lot of context to this whole story of Chabad and Zionism. Basically, Remendel Vechter is born in Hungary to uh, Holocaust survivor parents after the war, and he eventually moves to Canada, where his father was a prominent uh, rabbi, and he then he moves to Williamsburg, and he's very prominent in the Satmar community in Williamsburg, and he's ahead of a yeshiva there, and he eventually gets exposed to Chabad, and he, uh, you know, does this uh, surreptitious uh, conversion where he, you know, is somewhat part of Chabad, but he never officially renounces his position in Satmar, and he tries to try to keep it secret. They find out, and they accuse him of proselytizing. They're, you know, he's he's missionizing in the in the Satmar community, which is an unforgivable offense, and he's uh, eventually attacked. A terrible, very sad story. Although the Satmar leadership never condoned or, or the attack, and they they protested it after it took place, but it it it, it, it happened, and uh, he that caused him to move to Israel. That's so he moved to Kiryat Malachi, where he lives until today. Either way, that's a piece of history also. But either way, uh, Remendel Vechter was confused about uh, about uh, you know Satmar was 
very anti-Zionist. He knew the Rashab had been anti-Zionist. So what happened? Well, what it seems that Chabad is not enough anti-Zionist as Satmar is. And what happened to the three Shavuos, the three oaths that uh, that the Rashab had discussed and that the Satmarav ex- discussed extensively? And how come it wasn't utilized within the Chabad community in the 1970s, where he's uh, and that and that Rebbeil Khan addresses him uh, in this letter, and he discusses wh- how how there's Zionism, there's anti-Zionism, and then there's Hasidus. And the idea that in Hasidus, way back from the Baal Shem Tov, until, you know, through today, that, uh, you know, there's godliness everywhere, and if God uh, created something, then, uh, then there must be a reason for it, and our job is to find its practical use and just utilize the situation um, and... Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and so on. I'm not going to get into the whole theological discussion. That's not my uh, place. But that's the, that's the context where, where there's this, there's this question and it has to be answered using, uh, deep concepts of Hasidus and how we may have an ideological position on one hand, but the practical deviation has to deal with the reality being faced where there's a Jewish community in Israel. There is a state of Israel. Zionism is no longer an ideological movement, it's a sovereign state. So the Rebbe's ideas of Gaulus, of Geula, of exile, redemption, especially Messianism, and what needs to be done, all sorts of uh, observance of the Tyrian mitzvahs in order to hasten the redemption and Mashiach's arrival, were diametrically opposed to the Zionist view, whether it was religious Zionism or not. Um, he felt that the secular Jewish leadership is inherently incorrect, because leadership has to derive from the Torah. Um, and even though he recognized that so much good comes from this state and that it is a place of refuge, but that deviation from the Torah is a crucial mistake in his opinion. So the Rebbe also answered the Mihu Yehudi question from Ben-Gurion in 1960, when uh, David Ben-Gurion sent the question of who is a Jew to the 51 Chachme Yisrael, the 51 wise men of Israel. So the Rebbe was one of those 51 who was asked, and he answered, and he answered that it should only be someone who's a Jew is only someone who's a halachic Jew, unsurprisingly, that was his answer. And he elaborates on, on conversion laws and, and, and how um, lineage is going to be an issue if we change the definition of who a Jew is. Um, and uh, and um, so the, the recognition that there is a state and dealing with that in a practical sense, the Rebbe also emphasized, like I said earlier, the factor of pikuach nefesh, um, of protecting Jewish life, which leads him to a somewhat rightist view as far as, far as territorial annexation after the Six-Day War is concerned. Um, and not related to nationalism in a nationalistic sense, but rather in a pikuach nefesh sense of saving Jewish life or protecting Jewish life and similar halachic uh, considerations. Um, and he, um, he, the idea that there's, that there's, the Jews as a people, as individuals, and, and there's a love and care and a responsibility towards Jews to the Jewish people and not necessarily to the nation or the state. Um, and he also wanted to recognize the fact that there was miracles, there was the fact that there was hashgacha, 
uh, in the state's founding and after the Six-Day War. And what, what he felt his job was to work to ensure that there would be a higher level of Yiddishkeit by individuals in Israel, there, there would be a return to Jewish observance, and that's this way, that would, that would be playing his part. And it would be, the Rebbe felt it would be counterproductive to openly focus on the opposition and how the state was created, and instead he would focus on spreading Yiddishkeit and positivity, on moving forward uh, while, uh, while promoting uh, you know, Jewish observance. So that's, that was, the, that was the, main, uh, the main idea. So the way I would summarize it is that the shifting positions from before there was a state to after the state was common by many religious leaders and the general religious community as a result of both the Holocaust and the reality of an existing sovereign state of Israel. That was quite common. In that, in that regard, Chabad is not any different. Um, the second point that I want to bring in summary is uh, Zionism has very little meaning uh, once the state is founded. It becomes the sovereign state of Israel. Um, it's not. It's it's no longer the. I mean, if for people outside of Israel, it's still Zionism. But once once it is the state of Israel, so it's a practical reality that needs to be dealt with and lived in. And uh, and and you know. And, and so there's the question now of Israeliness and not really of of Zionism. And that and that becomes a distinction of whether it's inside Israel or outside in the diaspora. So, again, it's, as far as the, the Rebbe is concerned, uh, expressing his opinion from Brooklyn, as, a par, as opposed to his community uh, and what he wants his Hasidim to do uh, practically while living in Israel, while living in that reality. So that was Chabad and Zionism Part 2. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoy.